and welcome to Smooth Scaling, the podcast from Insight Partners that helps revenue leaders scale their software companies at every stage of growth. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan, and today I'm speaking with Natan Pollock, Vice President of Revenue Operations at Mambu, a cloud banking platform that empowers its customers to deliver modern financial experiences to everyone around the world. Welcome to the show, Natan. Thank you very much, Jeremy. We have now entered the chit-chat-free zone, so we're going to dive right in. As you reflect on your career, what critical initiative that stands out in your mind as having had a major impact on revenue performance? Thanks, Jeremy. So there are probably two that I want to draw attention to on this chat. I joined Bamboo in sales and then through my journey actually moved into the RevOps space a little later. So I'll start off with one that was external GTM focused, and then I'll speak about one after that that's a little bit more internal operations focused. So as you mentioned, Mambu is a core banking solution, and that really means that we are the back end to any financial services company or bank looking to offer financial products like current accounts, lending accounts, etc. If you are familiar with EU law, there is a license called an EMI license, an Electronic Money Institute license, which is the sort of entry level license to hold current accounts like a digital wallet in the EU. You can get that account issued or that license issued in any EU country, and it is then passportable around the EU. And different countries have different lengths of process to issue that license. So countries like the Netherlands and Germany take slightly longer. And there are other countries that have made that process a little more streamlined. So when I first joined Mambu, I was a business development manager and I was working on a number of different markets. One of those markets were the Baltics, so Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia. And at the time, this was about three and a half years ago, Lithuania was a particularly interesting market because they realized that if they were to make the EMI license application process a little more streamlined, it would attract a lot of US and Asian companies, specifically fintech companies, looking to offer their services in Europe because they would all start applying for their license in the Lithuanian market. They would require you to register in the Lithuanian market, pay some tax in the Lithuanian market, and they then made that process a lot quicker and a lot simpler for people applying. We have some business-friendly states in the U.S. where a lot of people register, not necessarily for financial purposes, but it seems like everybody is a Delaware-registered company here in the U.S., so I definitely get that analogy. <laughs> I've heard this definitely about the U.S. So what made Lithuania then interesting when you started thinking about GTM strategies? I mean, when you think of a GTM strategy, you often think channels and partners and accounts and cam lists. But what made this particular initiative quite interesting was we thought, what makes this particular geography unique? And how do we create a GTM initiative that is unique to a particular country versus just sort of a, a general standard template? And we thought, if you're coming to Lithuania and you're looking to obtain a license, you're going to have to speak to a number of different stakeholders, but there are some consistent stakeholders that will probably speak to most applicants. And that for us were the top law firms. So any US company or company coming from Asia Pacific looking to get a license will have to deal with a law firm that will help them fill out the application. And part of that application is speaking about the technology stack you're going to be using for the license. And so we set up a trip to Lithuania and we met with a number of the top law firms. We told them about the Mambu solution. We told them why we think it's a superior solution, why we think it would be worthwhile for them to pass on those prospects to Mambu in the early stages. And it very quickly became an unbelievable lead gen funnel because every company that came through Lithuania and needed to have a conversation about technology, if they weren't already having one, we would get an email introduction from some of those top law firms. And still today, those leads keep coming. 
unless it's a proprietary thing. I mean, a lot of our portfolio companies and just companies, software companies in general, would love to be able to develop a go-to-market channel through some sort of service provider, right? So to generalize this a little bit, law firms, accounting firms, web services firms, whatever it happens to be. How do you create an incentive structure for you know them to want to work with you as opposed to some other company who's providing similar solutions? It's a really good question, and actually one that we face in reality when we were having these conversations. There are obviously you know financial incentives, rewards, but the truth is, for companies that are operating at large scale, a one or two percent piece of the pie doesn't really cut it. Our learning was that it's really a deep belief that that solution will make their clients successful too. And so speaking to those partners as if they were customers and really getting them to understand the value of your solution and getting them to truly believe in your mission and your product was for us a much stronger lead generator than a small financial incentive. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I was talking to somebody else who's a, a service provider to Gong, the conversation intelligence solution, and they really want Gong reps to recommend them and write the a couple percent or whatever just does not matter for the Gong sales rep. Ultimately, the value is in net retention, right? If the more integrations companies use, the more likely they are to retain, the more value they're getting, the more likely they are to expand. So that, that makes a lot of sense that the lawyers would put first and foremost, right, their clients' success. And every service provider wants to have examples of customers that were successful. They use those as future referenceable clients. And so the more providers they can recommend that they will help their customers be successful, ultimately, it's, it's a good story for everyone. On the show, we've talked with a lot of people who have set up different types of partner motions. And this is a little bit of a different partner motion, right? The traditional partner motion is another ISV, or it is a systems integrator or managed service provider. This is a little different. In terms of go-to-market strategy and enablement here, is there the same concept as channel partner enablement and channel account managers who work with those law firms? I'm just wondering how you, what resources you devote to making sure that there's care and feeding of the law firms that are helping companies set up these financial business entities? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, back then when I was at Mambu, we were a considerably smaller organization. We were just starting up our partnership team. And so as the business development manager, I kind of took it on myself to manage both, you know, inbound, outbound, but also partner management for the territories I was responsible for. Today, we probably would see that as a slightly more structured partnership engagement. But I think the notion of finding a territory's unique value proposition still holds true, regardless of who's doing the actual lifting. And Lithuania was a really good example of, of thinking outside of the box if you really want to generate a, a number of leads that your competitors aren't getting to. From a go-to-market strategy, that was a strategy in a particular country, I assume, as you guys forget which number you are in the Cloud 100, but we've only been talking to CROs, CCOs, and heads of RevOps at Cloud 100 companies. In order to maintain your growth and stay on that vaunted list, I would assume you needed to expand that motion outside of Lithuania. Yes, absolutely. And we've structured a number of smart partnerships in you know, more major geographies to date. I use it as an example of thinking about how you can possibly do things a little differently versus following the traditional partnership channels that, you know, for sure your competitors are also thinking about. Yeah, brilliant. You mentioned one of the challenges, obviously, was figuring out how to get your talk track down around the incentives for having these folks work with you. What other 
hurdles or roadblocks or learning did you encounter along the way? So Mumbu is a global company, meaning that we've built a pretty robust product that can support clients in you know geographies from Colombia through to Vietnam. And naturally, when your product reaches that level of maturity, it becomes a more premium product and the price represents that too. And so when you're in markets like Lithuania that are smaller markets, you definitely find yourself coming up against local competition. And that local competition, obviously, you know, is supporting more local players. Sometimes their product is a little less developed. And so the price represents a, a less developed product. As a global player entering smaller markets or new markets, should I say, you'll often find yourself coming up against some serious price pressure. And I've had this, I guess, a couple of times in my career as we open up new geographies as a scale up where you are in a bit of a price crunch and you need to very quickly deflect a or divert a price commodity question from a race to the bottom to really trying to demonstrate your value and get your prospects to understand that working with a more mature product comes with all the advantages of quicker release times, more functionality, better support, and really getting them to understand that that comes with a price premium and price shouldn't be the only thing they're making their decision on if they have very ambitious goals and they want to scale internationally and they want to work with a a provider that has a much more proven track record versus a, a slightly earlier player that comes in at a cheaper price. That is an investment they're going to have to make early on. I would assume the price objection may come up fairly early. So you need to enable your reps to be able to talk to that. It sounded like you had a a few talking points there. One was, right, the quicker release cycle, obviously more features and functionality, the kind of proven track record, the global footprint and, and so forth. What do you find resonates most? I often feel if you throw too many differentiators at a prospect, then they can be overwhelmed by that. It's it's how do you find the one or two that are most tied to the value that they're seeking so you don't overwhelm them? Yeah. And I think you've, you've actually highlighted it. I don't think this is a standard golden nugget that I throw out. I think part of value selling is really listening deeply to what that prospect is trying to solve for and then understanding how to match that particular part of your product's functionality to how that will help them solve the problem better than the competitors. Uh, we speak about a host of different, you know, additions, things like faster time to market, things like reduced cost to serve, a higher ROI over the product lifecycle. And every client is different. They're looking for different things. Some are about expansion, others are about cost saving, others are about modernization. And through that real consultative selling motion, we're able to hopefully demonstrate that value for them. But that differs client to client. Yeah, I've been reading a few books lately that talk to this about the later stages of the sales cycle on there. There haven't really been that many books on that topic previously, but the jolt effect, I think is a very good example of that. There's also a lesser known book called the champion cell that goes into this. And it's, yeah, not only the value selling component, but also the risk reduction piece, right? So early in the sales cycle, so important to establish value in the ways that you talked about, right? Faster time to value and so forth. And then in the latter stages of the sales cycle, right? You convince the prospect on value. Now they're just nervous, right? Because there is ultimately going to be a human who's advocating to purchase and then possibly the same human, but likely somebody else who's actually going to approve the purchase. And those people, especially the one who's advocating for the purpose, the champion is putting their neck out on the line for this particular solution and they don't want to choose the wrong one. So 
you have to do whatever you can to reduce perceived risk. Are there things that you guys do to help lower that concern and, and really prove that implementation will be successful and that the client will realize value? Yeah, I think you touched on a very important point that Jeremy is. There's obviously value to the organization, but there's equally value to your economic buyers, right? And your champions within the organization. And sometimes what the organization's looking for versus their short-term incentives don't always align. And so I think it's important to try and balance those out. You obviously want to make sure that their organization gets the most value and the way you communicate value for their particular need. You know, if it's cost saving versus expansion, they are different conversations sometimes are taken care of, but equally to understand really what is your economic buyer's motivation? Do they have a huge KPI and an annual bonus link to this the performance of this purchase, right? Are they in the procurement team and are they trying to just reduce costs as much as possible? Is it a new CTO who comes from a tech background and they're trying to modernize and they're trying to show their value? And so these are all specific questions that, you know, you need to really build a relationship with someone. And, you know, sometimes it's those beers after the formal chats that release that sort of information that help make sure that you can get to the right balance between organizational and personal motivation. Yeah, the trust building piece, I think, is such a huge component. And it's it's just personal trust that this person has my back. And I know a lot of salespeople who are listening can attest to the fact that a lot of times some of one's best friends later on in life were your clients earlier. I can tell you that almost all of my closest friends now were people who were clients of mine earlier on. So I suspect that's a natural thing, right? You were in sales before you moved into Rev- RevOps. Do you have the same experience? Yeah, absolutely. I still have yeah one or two of my prospects as really good friends. And I think you, you invest so much time in the relationship. It's almost like friend dating with a bit of a sale attached to it that you can very easily become good friends with those prospects and future clients. So yeah, I think that is definitely an industry standard. It happens. Yeah, I think that's the hallmark of a good salesperson. Otherwise, maybe you're a little bit of a psychopath, right? Just I shouldn't say psychopath, sociopath, if you're just trying to influence people, get the sale and walk away. I don't, that's obviously not how do you succeed in enterprise selling? One last thing I wanted to cover off on before we maybe do another episode of your game on the commercial playbook on your second topic is there's a lot of RevOps people who come from like diverse backgrounds, maybe consulting or a lot from finance, for example, from FP&A. You don't necessarily see a ton who come from sales, partly because the salespeople are just less likely to have as deep of an analytics and systems background. I'm curious if you think, you know, when you go to hire people for your team, do you look for people who were sellers before? There's obviously a lot of benefit that comes from having carried a bag before. It's a great observation, Jeremy. And I'll say two things to this point. One is people say, do you prefer RevOps from sales? And my response usually is I've never left sales. I'm just selling to a different audience. I've gone from what sometimes can be, you know, a transactional sale to a customer with, you know, less contact post the sale because they get passed over to a customer success manager to a sales cycle with a consistent set of stakeholders that the relationship matters before, during, and after the sale continuously. And so I've actually found that my sale capability has become improved because I've needed to find far more sustainable solutions and far more midpoints between very strong personalities at the table sometimes, never with the goal of I win, you lose, because in the long run, it doesn't end well for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you had to gain that skill and obviously there's on the job practice, but how have you gotten better at sales in your RevOps role? How have you sharpened the sword? I think it's 
really about finding common ground with internal stakeholders, right? And often you have initiatives and naturally you'll always have those that are supporters, neutrals and demoters and trying to bring those, you know, those neutrals and those demoters over the line, you know, is a sale in some sense, but it's also about realizing that those are the same people that have to execute and be your partners post going live. You don't hand them over to a customer success manager once you're live on this new, you know, process or, or tool that you've implemented. And so finding common ground and making sure everyone wins in the process has been a, a real lesson in RevOps. Yeah, I was just reflecting as you were talking about where I learned some of this stakeholder influence, because yeah, you're right, as in RevOps, you're a bit of an account manager with an internal focus. And with the company I spent the bulk of my career at, I spent 16 years in one place. I had some great bosses that taught me how to influence and persuade internally. And one of the secrets that they shared with me was role-playing those stakeholders, right? If you're selling to the CFO internally, you need to know what motivates them. And oftentimes you're not just convincing the CFO, you might be convincing the head of HR, the CEO, the CRO, like all these people you need to convince. And they all have slightly different perspectives and, and goals. But the, I think the good news about internal influence and persuasion is that because you work with these people on the long term, you not only have that trust, but you know what their OKRs, what their objectives and key results and goals and so forth are, and, and their personalities. I think you've got it just right. But I mean, you speak about selling to different buyers, essentially. It's the same as external sales, right? When you have a CFO and a CRO and a, a CEO as an external sale, you also are speaking to different value props, as we alluded to earlier. The same goes for the internal sale, as you point out, and, and getting that what's in it for me right for every person is a very critical skill to getting initiatives across the line effectively. Well, brilliant. Well, thanks so much today for sharing your wisdom on go-to-market strategy and in particular, this unique bent of going in a particular country with a non-traditional go-to-market channel. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to the Smooth Scaling Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. For more information about the topics we discussed today, check out the Insight Partners blog at insightpartners.com slash blog. See you next time.